Well, as Eric reminded us, um, and as most of you undoubtedly already knew, the renowned uh, theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul passed away this week. He's, he's now beholding the Savior whom he proclaimed faithfully for decades. He's beholding him face to face. His faith has become sight. His hope has become possession. And so the promise that was held out, he clung to. And from very early on in his ministry, R.C. Sproul talked about the importance of living and preaching as a man prepared to die. He lived with the promise of God, that God is the vindicator of those who believe. And he lived and he died in that hope. That's an awesome thing. And the great news is that that hope isn't some esoteric thing or it's not something that's above or beyond any of us, but rather God offers it to each of us. And I think the Christmas season, which R.C. Sproul loved, he loved Christmas and he loved children. He wrote a number of children's books. And so I think he would have been very happy to have worshipped in a place like ours where we honor both. But... This Christmas season, the Christmas season, I think is a remarkable opportunity, even if for nothing else, that just as life sort of goes along ho-hum, and, and life and all the troubles and trials of it are just sort of there all the time, and the Christmas season sort of descends upon it, almost unnaturally, almost out of place, if you think about it. We kind of have to force the Christmas season into it into life, because all the problems of life are still ongoing. In a very real way, that's a picture of what happened when Christ came. Life was just going on. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, was near the end of his reign. He had unified the Roman world. In his own words, he found Rome a city of bricks, and he left it a city of marble. Augustus did more than probably any human on earth to make a defunct republic a thriving empire. But of course that meant oppressing the little guy. And so Palestine was just a place under the thumb of a foreign ruler. There was a despotic man on the throne, Herod. And his family had traveled to take part in a census. Undoubtedly, the infamy of being an unwed pregnant woman hung over their head. We know that they knew about it because they appear to have even made reference to it later on in Jesus' ministry. And into this normal, mundane life, the Son of God came. Now, I believe that the point of the first advent as Matthew makes so much effort to drive home is that God keeps his promises God keeps every last promise he makes last two weeks ago we began our advent series title entitled Tidings of Comfort and Joy. And we started by looking at Genesis 3. 
Specifically, we focused on Genesis 3.15, where everything went wrong. Everything had gone wrong. And yet in the midst of human sin and rebellion, God didn't just immediately drop the hammer. He sought them out. And he made promises. And he made provision. And that's where the story begins. Confronting head-on the problems of life. One of the most promises in the Bible. A promise that's reiterated throughout Scripture. A promise that I believe you and I can take into our daily life was uttered first and foremost to Joshua. Joshua, on the eve of him becoming the man, Moses has just died, and he's about to be sort of coronated, if you want to call it that, and God comes to him and tells him in chapter 1, verse 9 of, his, of the book of Joshua, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that's repeated throughout Scripture. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the, sum, in the summons of Jesus. When in Matthew 28, 20, he tells us, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's a lot of things in life that threaten us, that cause us to fear, that cause us to wonder if the promises and plans of God are perhaps forgotten or defeated. But that promise given first to Joshua, then to the people of Israel, then ultimately even to us, remains, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. For the Lord your God, Jesus himself, is with you even to the end of the age. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He abided in the flesh. He knows the struggles. He knows the trials. He knows the humiliation. He knows the muck and mire of human existence. It's always awe-inspiring to me. That he chose willfully to be born in a stable, in a little rinky-dink town, Bethlehem. Incredible. And he chose to live as a carpenter, a little craftsman. He, the king of the world, that's an awesome fact. So the promise of Christmas is that God keeps his promises. That light has pierced the darkness that that oath made by God back in the beginning of time, in Genesis 3.15, that work has commenced. The wheels of redemption history turn, and we await. We await the consummation. We await the culmination of the day in which there will be no more death, no more decay, no more distress, no more sorrow, no more suffering, 
No more futility. We await that day. We await the revealing of the sons of God in glory. We await the revealing of the new heavens and the new earth. When God will dwell with us and we will see him face to face as he is. Something that Moses could never do, could never see. We will get that. That's incredible. But a promise is a promise precisely because we don't get it now. A promise is a promise precisely because it is future-oriented. Otherwise, there's no need for that promise. You just get it. The question for each of us and every one of us regarding every promise is do I believe it or do I not? When someone makes a promise to you, you are confronted with a choice to believe the promise or to not believe the promise. Do we believe the promises of God? Will we rest and receive the promises of God for us? We learn that humans are often prone to thinking, oh, I believe, when in fact it was just lip service. Faith and confidence and resting in the promises of God is revealed by the way in which we reside in them and make our life choices based around them. Do we believe the promises of God? It can be hard for us to believe the promises of God. First and foremost, because we're so used to the promises of people. And the promises of people fail. Sometimes, they fail intentionally. People make a promise, and they are duplicitous. They say it, and they don't mean it. Sometimes the promises of people fail because people change their mind. Oh, they meant it when they said it, but then different circumstances come up, and there's no commitment to follow through, so the changing circumstances result in a change of mind, and so the promise fails. Sometimes, when we promise something, we intend to fulfill it. But we're not in ultimate control of circumstances, are we? How many of you have made a promise fully intending to keep it, but you circumstantially were prevented from keeping it? It happens. So we're used to promises that fail. We're used to promises that at best are simply an expression of desire or intent. But promises from God are different. The promises of God are sure and certain because of the one making the promise. God is unchangeable and unchanging. Therefore, we can rest assured that his promises are true. They're not just simply expressions of intent. When God makes a promise, he's not just saying, I'm going to work really hard to try to bring this about. He's telling you, this will happen. You will be transformed into the image of Jesus. And he will wipe away every tear. That's not just him giving you something to you know, hope for and like, like, like he's maybe going to do it. He's telling you, this is rock solid. Now how can we be certain? Well, it's God's character. He's sovereign. 
because he's sovereign, that is in absolute control, we can be assured that he will bring everything together so that his promises are realized. And when we say that he's sovereign, that's the culmination of his attributes. Specifically, he's omniscient. He knows everything. There's no new circumstances. There's no new information that's going to be uncovered that causes God to change his mind. He knows it all from the beginning. He knows what you were going to do. The choices you're going to make a year from now, God knew from eternity past. So you don't have to wonder, is what I'm going to do tomorrow going to cause God to change his mind about me? He's omnipotent. That is, he's all-powerful. And mockers and, and skeptics like to try to create these conundrums that are just nonsensical. God's omnipotence is not a silly thing to be trifled with. Can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift? That's childish. God's omnipotence is real-life war power. Omnipotence means that there is no force, nor is there any combination of forces that can ever successfully thwart God. That's what it means. It's not silly tricks. It's the power to affect his will. God cannot be overcome. But third, he's omnipresent. And I think that's the one where we sometimes forget. Have you ever just felt alone? Have you ever felt that God really isn't there? That you're going through what you're going through precisely because God is absent. The reality of God's omnipresence is that he's with you in your lonely place. He's with you in your terrible place. In all of his knowledge, in all of his power, God is with you. So there's no place you can go, whether it's to the mountaintops or to the deepest valley in the sea. There's no place you can go where God cannot find you and work his perfect will for you. God's promise is sure. But we endure a lot of unpleasantness in life. Ben, if God's promise is sure, and all God's promises are yes in Jesus, which is the Bible, then why is my life so racked with hardship and pain? And the short answer is, I don't know. Theologically, I can tell you it's his plan. Our passage today is preceded by hundreds of years of waiting. In Genesis 3.15, we learn the first utterance of the gospel, that there will come a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Fast forward hundreds of years, perhaps a couple millennia, and in Genesis chapter 12, a man, a man we learn in the book of Joshua was a pagan. He wasn't a God-fearer. Abraham, before he was called by God, was a, was a heathen. But he was called by God. And he leaves his homeland to follow a promise. And at the end of chapter 13, he's kind of heartbroken. Because his brother had died and he had taken along his nephew, Lot. But they were so, they were so 
prosperous, that they couldn't dwell together. Their, 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 their hired hands were fighting. And so they go up on this mountaintop, and Abraham says, Nephew, you know, pick the best land, and you go for it. And so Lot foolishly selects the city. And he goes to the city, and, you know, we, we know what happens. But Abraham's up there kind of brokenhearted. And what does God say? Look around. Look as far as you can to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. Every place on which you are treading, it will be yours and your descendants after you. And that promise is repeated again and again and again through generations. And finally, at the end of Genesis, as Joseph is dying, one of the sons of Jacob the grandson, the great-grandson of Abraham. He's dying, and he says, the Lord will visit you here in Egypt. Take my bones with you. Hundreds of years pass. Generation after generation of Hebrew dies in the sands of Egypt. Where's God's promise? Has it failed? Where's the promise? You said, O Lord, that you would give us this land. Then comes the ministry of Moses, God hears. And Moses responds to a burning bush. He's just out minding his business. He's a fugitive from Egypt, justice. He hears a bush. He sees a bush and he hears a voice and he goes to it. And his life is forever changed. He goes back to Egypt. And in power, a visible mighty hand, the Lord delivers his people from Egypt. And of course, we know about the Exodus. We know about the sin after sin after sin. The rebellion, the resistance. And God finally says, you This generation will die in the sand. So 40 years later, 40 years later. So now we're we're easily 500 years. We're about 430 years from, from the last utterance of the promise to Jacob, but about 500 years from when Abraham first received the the, the promise. Hundreds of years, half a millennia. That's a long time. Where's the promise? And Moses, he gets to climb Mount Nebo and he gets to look out and see the promised land. Just a a glimpse and then he dies. And Joshua takes over. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. Did you know that Jesus and Joshua are the same name? Salvation is from the Lord. Our Savior is named after Jesus. Joshua, you surely will be the one through whom I deliver this land into the hands of my people. And so after some initial preparatory stuff, at the end of chapter 5, the angel of the armies, the commander of the armies of the Lord show up, and he says, it's time to get to business. And so for five chapters, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, There's warfare as the people of God take possession of the land and exercise punishment against the 
the ones whom God has appointed for punishment. But then for the last half of the book of Joshua, from chapter 12 through 23, it's mind-numbingly boring. Because if you read it, it's meticulous. It's list after list. It's like a map being read to you. But it's vital. Because these maps is the land being apportioned out to each tribe. To all of the cities of refuge. All the cities for the Levites. Everything is planned out. Everything is apportioned out. Everything is delivered. It's like payday at my house. When I give kids, uh, we pay our kids an, an allowance slash wage. And so we, we have a monthly reckoning where I sit down and I pay them in cash. And I apportion out each one's money in relation to the amount of work they do. So it's like payday. They're getting their land. And then we come to our text. So please look with me at Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. 500 years later, it was paid in full. Every word that the Lord had said came to pass. God keeps his promises. Throughout subsequent redemptive history, promises were made about the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would come and redeem the people. And one night, in about 3 B.C., that promise was kept, and Jesus was born. Brothers and sisters, right now we're in the muck of life. We're like those Israelites waiting. When's the promise going to be fulfilled? We're waiting. Let us have better hindsight than they. God has fulfilled his promises time and time and time again. You're not alone. He's not abandoned you. He hasn't forgotten about you. His word hasn't failed you. He came. He crushed the head of the serpent. And right now in this interim period that some call the church age, all the sheep of the lords that are on scattered hills, they're being summoned. They're being called. We learn in 1 Peter that the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish, but rather to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, every single person for whom Jesus died will come to a knowledge of the truth. 
Not one promise of God's will fail. Not one sheep of Jesus's will die. They will all be found. So you wonder why we're still delaying in this age? That means there's still more people to be saved. That means there's more sheep to be found. That means there's more work to be done. So get on with it. While the Lord tarries, it's the age of repentance. Did you know that he commands us to proclaim the good news everywhere to everyone without discrimination of of class, personhood, or anything? Preach the good news that now is the day of repentance. And if you repent and turn to Christ, he will keep his promise. And your sins, which are scarlet, will be as white as snow. But for those who will not repent, God keeps his promises. And what is God's promise to those who will not receive his son? They will die in their sin. Christmas time, it speaks to us of the joy that God has broken into history. The Son of Man has come to conquer the powers of the world. He has been victorious. And we now have his righteousness credited to us by faith. Oh, what a glorious hope. So when you walk out these doors, you're going to feel like you have to do battle with the world. And sometimes that battle with the world may be in your own family. But just remember, you're not alone. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That is his promise. And it's as good as gold.